Attention all drawing nerds. This is Dave McGuire, and I'm interrupting your podcast for a very important announcement. I am giving you a call to action. As you know, the Nerd Cave has been overrun by a spirit that we've come to know as Alan. He inhabits our bodies to speak, and he shows no signs of leaving. And in order to cope with this new presence, we need your help. That's right. Pick up your pens, pick up your computers, and give us a drawing of what you think Alan looks like. And it is imperative that you send it to the nerds at nerdonomy.com so that way we may understand our visitors some more. Best interpretation that we receive will become our new t-shirt design. Submissions end December 24th at midnight. Good luck and thank you. All right, Brian, I really have to apologize for the past uh-huh. couple of times. I know I screwed it up, but I've done my research and I've I've embraced Christmas in a way that I never thought I would. And you have no idea what it's taken me to, to make this work, really. So I, I know that, that Garland is incredibly important this time of year. It's, it's oh, a oh, great yeah, decoration. Totally. No, in fact, actually, I brought some of my own. We should, we should compare. Oh, okay. Well, I, I mean, I got the most famous available, so I'm not exactly sure what you famous? got in there. But Garland. Oh, okay. Well, um, what's in the bag? This is Garland. What the heck is that? Oh. This is... Garland, you string it around a Christmas tree. Ah, okay. Um, you, you you may you may not want to go in there. Eric, what's in the cave? Just look for yourself. Is that Judy Garland? What's left of her? Yeah. I, Eric, I, I just I thought, you, you know how many state lines. I had to evade the police across to get this here. You know, it wasn't easy. It was not easy. And, you know, that casket is heavier than it looks. I literally have nothing to say to you. Do you hear that? Oh, they caught up. Welcome to Nerds on History. I'm Brian Moriarty. And I'm Eric Brickmont. Well, sir, how are you? I'm well. You're well. I'm better than, than Martha. Martha's sick. Oh, that's right. I've been home all day taking care of her. Yeah. Bringing her chicken soup and Tylenol, all those good things. But yeah. she's, she's on the mend. She's feeling better. She woke up a little while ago, and she's, she's starting, to, starting to, to feel a little more alive, which is good. Good. Yeah. I'm glad she's pulling it together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm excited because we've actually, we really have started decorating the Nerd Cave for We Christmas. have, and we've gotten it right. And we don't have any dead bodies or severed toes or munitions uh, or anything like that. Really, right. no no red hearts. It's it's all actual Christmas stuff. Right. And we've got our stockings. We have uh, our Darth Vader wearing a Santa hat. We do. Uh, we have Garland that uh, is actual supposed to light Garland, up, but does not, not. Judy. Oh, can we name it Judy? Let's no. name it Judy. No. Yeah, we're doing that. We're naming the Garland <laughs> Judy. I, I disagree entirely with every fiber of my being, but. Um, uh, I do have power but, veto, however, so I'm vetoing that and naming it Judy. Ah, well, I think we're done here. Yeah, our listeners voted. We didn't tell you. We figured it was best you find out in you know actual uh-huh. circumstantial uh-huh. fashion. Yeah, sure. We've also got like the world's smallest Christmas tree. I don't think uh-huh. it's the world's smallest, but it's definitely a contender. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's somebody out there. I mean, with it a stands one. about ten inches tall. It's pretty. No, it's taller than that. It's at least fifteen. Really? Oh yeah, at least fifteen inches. I don't really want to go there because <laughs> that. <laughs> But look, we have our first present underneath it, which is some lovely chert. 
that was sent to us by John. Oh, that's right. Uh, who yes, I, of for your course, flint put napping. out. Yes, I put out a national plea for shirt and antlers to be sent to the Brickmont residents. And again, if you go ahead and contact me via our website, I will give you my address and you can send me shirt and antlers. You heard it, folks. A national distress call for shirt. There was a letter written to the White House, which was immediately discarded and thrown away. But nevertheless, it was put out there. Hey, presidential garbage is still presidential. Gotta say, we're coming up in the world. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> That's my response to everything tonight. And we uh-huh. have another gift, but we're going to we're gonna actually open it on air in a little while. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. But sure. we, we do have another gift just waiting here in hot anticipation. Too. It's huge. It's absolutely enormous. It's it came large. in the mail today. We were quite excited to receive it. So we'll talk about that in a second. But first, let's get into some listener feedback. This week in listener feedback. Uh, we, we got one email. Actually, we, just, we literally just got one. Oh, my God. As we're recording, it is uh, from our good friend Benny. Benny! Oh, excellent. That is amazing. I love when we actually get to have it happen, like, in the moment. Uh, how about I cold read this one and you read the the one we got a couple days ago? Okay, sounds fair. Benny writes, subject, I won the shout-out. Stoked! Uh, good day, nerds. I just want to say that you guys are my favorite part of the week, as I wait in anticipation every week for both episodes. I'm sure all my workmates think I'm quite crazy when I burst out laughing at my station. I'm stoked that I won History's Mysteries question, and I can't wait for your D.B. Cooper episode. Of all History's strange and confusing stories, D.B. Cooper has fascinated me more than any other. Okay, so my shout-out. I would love to use to say hi to my lovely wife, Alex, who is a huge fan, and if you could say... Put another shrimp on the Barbie in your best Aussie accents. That would be great, because I can probably speak for most of my fellow countrymen when I say there is nothing funnier than an American trying to do an Australian accent. <laughs> oh, Benny, challenge Good. accepted. Good luck. Uh, do you want to give this a shot? Because yours is oh, way better than mine. Absolutely. Well, I first like to say hello to Alex. Oh, I absolutely love you. You think you're great for listening. You and uh, Benny both. And uh, while you're at it, why don't you throw another shrimp on the Barbie? There you go. Uh, hey, I, I think that was pretty That was pretty damn on. good. That was pretty damn good. So there you go, Benny. There you go. I'm not even going to try. Because I'm going to fall into Michael Caine, and that doesn't, that's not fair. It's the only accent you highly honestly do. That and Batman, which is not really an accent, but hey, it's a style I can speaking. do more than one type of dialect. You know that. Come on now. All right, fair enough. But I think I think Eric uh, did you do, it you do a, both an of excellent us. Russian Michael Caine. I will say that. <laughs> Thank you. I'm not sure if I should take that as an insult or not. Uh, I'm going to take it as a compliment instead. Okay, very good. Excellent. Um, He continues, by the way. Also, I wanted to tell you guys about my family's Christmas tradition. Down here in Australia, you're probably aware that when you are enjoying your white Christmas, we are enjoying our hotter-than-Satan's armpit Christmas. He put it in caps. This is also more relevant for my family as we live in Queensland, which is known as the Sunshine State. (laughs) (laughs) So you can imagine how hot and unpleasant it can be here on Christmas Day. So as a result of the weather, we celebrate Christmas outside with cold meats and barbecue, preferring to be in a pool than inside eating a hot traditional Christmas feast. So our tradition is called Christmas in July, where we have a traditional Christmas feast in July when it is not nearly as hot. Sort of a funny thing. We're not sure if it's celebrated everywhere, but here in Queensland it is very popular. Oh, shit. I just saw how long-winded this email <laughs> is, so I'll say goodbye and please keep up the great work. Hooroo! The traditional Australian goodbye. Benny, that is a fantastic email. Thank you so much. And it gave me a chance to do my absolutely amazing Australian accent. Amazing. 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 Yes, it was. 
Oh, Kidok thing. Because my, because honestly, if I do my Australian, it turns into New Zealand, and it's not fair to either New Zealanders oh, or Australians. I don't want to receive any kind of of hate mail from either side. But you know what, Benny, you asked for it, so you gotta hit us back next week and tell us how funny you thought that was. Yeah, and we'll hopefully read it on the next podcast. Yeah. So um, that was one piece. Uh, we got another one too. Do you want? Take that one, sir. All right. Our next one comes from Dyramid. And uh, Dyramid says, Hi, Eric, Brian. My wife and I have been enjoying your podcast for over a year. They are amusing, informative, and also the perfect length for my weekend job. Can we hold for a second? Yep. Like Station from Bill and Ted's, we have run on each other and become one amalgus being. We are now Eric Brian. It it may have been a transporter accident. I think you might have misread the comment, but that's okay. Like the Voyager episode, that really, really bad one where Tuvok and Elix got combined together, which... No one knows what I'm talking about except for all the Star Trek nerds out there. But that's fine, because you know what I'm talking about and how bad it was. It's like that. (laughs) Only not. Okay. (laughs) And I continue. Go ahead. Uh, Anyway, says, uh, they are amusing, informative, and the perfect length for my weekend jogs. Keep them going. I'm sure you guys have heard about the Austrian character Krampus. If not, here's a couple of articles, mostly photos, that uh, I noticed this week. And I think that um, Krampus is kind of more like... um, Work with me here, Brian. It's kind of like Joarte Piete, uh, which is we talked about. Is what's well, actually it's Black Pete. Black Pete. Right. Joarte Piete was his is his name in, in uh, Dutch, right? In the Netherlands, which we exactly. talked about was the blackface uh, character that's used, and it's actually kind of offensive. Yeah, it is rather offensive. We talked about that on our Saint Nicholas yeah. episode, which he does reference here in the email as well, which is obviously where he was uh, picking that up from from last year's uh, Christmas episode. Uh, he says that he's also had previous uh, experiences similar to uh, to Brian and his uh, and his Christmas mornings, uh, where the presents that were left from Santa Claus were unwrapped and the Christmas cake slice was kind of left for him half eaten with the crumbs all around. You gotta go with that, right? It's and his amazing. Guinness was not quite finished yet. They give him uh, the from the Guinness. Well, he's, he grew up in Ireland. He grew up in Dublin. Oh, that makes so much sense. Santa must like hang out in Ireland for at least a good hour or longer. That's- Amazing! I want to do that now. I want to leave out Guinness and cookies for uh, Guinness and cake for Santa Claus. That'd I kind of hope it's like the last place he visits because it's not that far away from the North Pole. So if he's going to drive tanked, you know, at least he's going a short distance. I am deciding now that when I have kids, I'll have to convince my future wife, who I am not have not met yet, that I will leave out Guinness for Santa Claus. Okay, just make sure the kids don't get to it first. You know, if they do, they'll sleep just fine. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, uh, just a quick disclaimer. We are not condoning uh, the drinking of alcohol while driving or sled riding, uh, nor the consumption of alcohol by children, um, unless you're Santa. Well, I know you are. (laughs) But we collectively are not. No. Don't be bad. Uh, anyhow, he continues, uh, my grandfather enjoyed the ritual the, uh, the most. It okay. was a wonderful touch uh, for my family, and I hope to recreate it when I have kids. <laughs> Apparently, so does Brian. Uh, I'm half Irish, and I grew up in Dublin, so maybe this is an Irish thing. Uh, my aunt left some red threads around the fireplace one Christmas Eve to convince the uh, skeptical eldest son, and apparently that worked. Oh, that's genius. Yeah, it is actually quite clever. Maybe like a boot or something like that in the fireplace. That'd be, that'd be funny. I, I think Santa would have come back for a boot. He would have his foot would have been cold the rest of the night. Well, he's got extras. Okay, it's a he big sleigh. Just, just ma- anyway, we're, we're getting okay. off topic here on the Santa. I know. I'm so sorry. He continues. Your episode on vampires and the actual accounts from the medieval Europe reminded me of a film called The Hour of the Pig with Colin Firth. Uh, I think it's called The uh, Advocate in the U.S. Uh, a far inferior title, obviously. The Hour with the Pig is fantastic. 
Uh, it's based on the uh, the career of a real life lawyer who defends animals accused of crimes in the 15th century France. Uh, I think a uh, a podcast based on animal crimes would be a fun and amusing topic, like the nature of the scapegoat. Yes, or raccoons, the little thieves. And they get the little little masks that they wear. Come on, Brian, focus here. Focus. <clears throat> Continue. Uh, as someone who lives in India and has traveled a lot in Southeast Asia, I would love to hear more about the colonialism in Asia. European colonialism in Asia is a very rarely covered topic in school history classes or generally by contemporary media. The focus is on Africa and the American continent. A podcast on the history of the East India Company would be good, which we talked about when we did a history of tea. Definitely want to visit that. Yes, that uh, coffee um, and tea beverage of criminals. You should check it out. Yes, it was an excellent episode. Uh, another podcast I'd love to hear about is the Opium Wars between uh, Britain and China, which we also referenced in that same episode. Uh, it was remarkable that uh, the most powerful nations in the world were generating a huge portion of their wealth by selling drugs to China, which is so very true, sir. And he finishes with a question. Why did you choose Ferris? Do you want me to take it? You go for it. Okay, so when we were developing the jingle for the podcast, we wanted... Something that was classical to make it sound like we know we were sophisticated, sophisticated, but we also wanted a sound that made it sound like we were equally nerdy. So we thought, as I was playing around with it, a, an eight-bit version of for release would be kind of that perfect uh, combination, right? Because eight-bit has that video game music kind of sound to yeah. it. So it started off very kind of just that's all it was, and it's sort of evolved since then into becoming uh, this kind of contemporary rock eight-bit version of the song. Or the Trans-Siberian. It's 16-bit like now. It's kind of yeah. changed a little bit. A little bit. And there's also the Trans-Siberian version that we've been doing the past couple weeks, which is... <laughs> right for the... I had so much fun making in, in the garage band. And we have the Halloween version that we've done. A whole bunch right. of them, yeah. Ex- Lots with, of cool with the, uh, Yeah, with the organs and the, the yeah. wolf howling and all that. Yeah. So that's why. So there you go. So thank you very much for your email. He says, uh, just in closing, that he was, he uh, looks forward to hearing the rest of our Christmas episodes. So, uh, hey, there you go. we got another Sweet. one coming at you in seconds. Well, I think it's time we introduce our guest for the evening. I, I don't think we can hold off any longer. I think that the fans will be outraged if we do. I, well, actually, that and she's literally about to leave. So we should yeah, probably she, she's get her starting to sit to back down anxious. and get her to, you know. Why don't you yeah. introduce her? Cause well, I have to. You have to I introduce have to. her. Exactly. She's blood. She's family. She's, she's familiar. She is, she is literally just this giant amorphous blob of blood. Exactly. <laughs> Which is terrifying and also fascinating at the same time. Welcome, hemoglobin. No, 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 no. Uh, welcome, my, my cousin, Cassandra Stewart. Hello. How are you? Now, I'm why excited. Is, you should be. And we are excited because you are the daughter of one of our biggest fans, <laughs> Aunt <laughs> Teresa, <laughs> who was absolutely freaking out at this moment <laughs> while listening to the podcast. I know. I was really hoping that we can keep this on the down low until she downloads it. <laughs> well, I think we, uh, we we won't mention it in the podcast. <laughs> we, uh, won't. we won't mention it in the, the description when we release it. So we'll just say a very special guest. Yeah, yes. and I haven't said anything. And I, I called her recently and was trying to ask, so have, uh, have you been listening recently to the nerds on history have they said anything about what's coming up and she's like no why are you asking like, oh, no. No, no, no reason, reason. <laughs> surprise <laughs> there you go well as it turns out aunt Teresa left us this big old christmas gift she did she sent it all the way from her home uh, a couple hundred miles away in the mail and it's been sitting here and we've been anxiously waiting to open it but we decided we leave it for the actual podcast and we're going to open it we're going to do it right now cool I think I'll, you take one end, I'll take the other end. Okay. A box! Oh, how did you know? 
Oh wait, there's something in the box. It's a big box. Hang on. It says Sterling, protecting, caring, delivering. All right. Yeah, I, I think it's just a reused box, but let's... I, oh, I was trying to make it dramatic. Oh, sorry. Hold on, Jeez. we have a knife. We have the nerd knife. Use the nerd knife. Okay. Which is also the nerd uh, wine opener as well, for and those of you. And the nerd corkscrew, yes. And the nerd corkscrew. <laughs> which uh, apparently doesn't work. <laughs> oh, the magic of radio. All of our listeners at home imagining this... The scene. It's actually quite hilarious because Brian cannot cut it open with a two-inch <laughs> Because knife. it's like when you double thick, when you make the double thick packing tape, it's like this thing is, this is the like the dullest knife I've ever worked with. <laughs> and I'm talking about, I'm pretty sure you can cut this with a butter knife. Now, listeners, th this is not done for a dramatic effect. We are opening the box in real time. Ah, and yet there is more wrapping paper. <laughs> oh my God. Sean, can you put in some dramatic music oh, for this? Yeah. Are definitely. you going to be able to open these? I think they go under your tree. Um, no, there's definitely things in here that we should we should open. Oh, she just put a sheet. She just put a sheet. Oh, oh, oh. okay, okay. Oh. Oh, very nice. Oh my God. Oh, excellent. So I, we have a Superman candy cane and a Batman strawberry. candy cane. Those oh, which is raspberry. Fantastic. And is that what I think it is? Is that oh. a is that a Star Wars blanket? Oh, oh this quilts. is so cool. And, oh, oh, wait, there's another one. Eric. Oh, here, trade, trade, trade. <laughs> Star Trek. Yes, I'll take the Star Trek blanket. You take the Star Wars blanket. Oh, my God! This is wow, like these are huge. These are gigantic. There's enough that you could fit all of Nerdonomy under both I'm wrapping these. myself in this. I'm sorry, I'm freezing right now. You, so I know, you, it's so cold. <laughs> <laughs> I'm slightly jealous that I don't have one coming oh, towards well, me. Here, you can have mine. <laughs> it's okay, Dad. You can have mine. You're the guest. <laughs> <laughs> Here, I'll pass it over. Is okay. it, oh, so I get the Star Trek. You get the Star yes, Trek it's one. Nice and soft and plushy. Yes. Now we are. Aunt Teresa knows from from being a longtime listener that we are the uh, Switzerland of nerdiness, and that's why what she gave us both. So exactly. We can maintain our neutrality. Exactly. This is amazing. These the are so cool. Okay, I've got to take a picture of you guys. This is awesome. Oh, okay. I love these blankets when she makes them. <laughs> All right. Now, are you saying that? I mean, I know. She is the craftiest woman on the planet. <laughs> I have seen incredible things come from her. These are these. You think she she she, she handmade these? Did she put these together? Oh yeah, sure she like? she can whip these out in like twenty minutes. Oh my god. Yeah. Well, she never I, maybe I'm down. Me. You know, downgrading a little bit. No, yeah. I mean, we, all of us kids have like five of them. <laughs> wow. She just makes them. Well, the she goes to the fabric on, store. The buys printing it. on this is pretty amazing. So yeah. that's that's awesome. Oh, Incredible. so she bought the fabric and then she like put padding in it and all that. There's no padding in it. Oh, okay. That's well, just a thick blanket. It's just That's yeah, it's just awesome. fleece. That is two, so great. Fleece two-sided. So wow. normally what would have gone in like uh, like a 5-year-old's room <laughs> is now adorning the nerd cave as it should be. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm okay with that. Oh, no, of course we cannot forget we have there's a Christmas card. card that says yes. to the Nerdonomy family in a nice bright red envelope. Again, no sound effects. This as is I'm, really happening as I'm massacring this envelope. <laughs> uh, okay. you do the honors. You do the honors. Oh god. <laughs> Hey Nigel, the boss wants a sponge out. This is this is the elves of the workshop. Walk in, he sees Santa naked on a table. Think happy thoughts. Think happy thoughts. So, who's your biggest fan? <laughs> Just a little something to keep you guys warm in the nerd cave. Love to all of you, Aunt Teresa. And of course, many happy thoughts to you this Christmas is what it says. Absolutely amazing. Kyla. What do you got next? Yeah, <laughs> seriously. Kyla, for those of you who don't know, is our uh, other 
self-proclaimed biggest fan. <laughs> so this this war has been going on for a while now. My mom's nemesis. I think Aunt Teresa just kind of <laughs> upped the bar a little bit here because, uh, wow. Honestly, though, Aunt Teresa. Make us cookies. She's going to have to make us cookies. We love you so much. Thank you so much. <laughs> These are really awesome. These really are absolutely fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. And we should uh, put those up next to the Batman wall that we've just uh, created. Yes, we today. shall. We shall. Yeah. All right. This has been exciting. This is probably the most exciting opening we've ever had. And I'm okay with that. But we do have an actual show to get to, do we not? We do indeed. The reason why Cassandra is here is because we thought it's Christmas time. Let's talk about easily one of the most famous stories that you can associate with Christmas next to like Charles Dickens, The Christmas Carol, or A Christmas Carol, I should say. Uh, which is the Nutcracker. And Cass, why, per se, would we ask you to come and speak about this? Um, because I was a ballet dancer for my entire life, uh, <laughs> since I was five, <laughs> until I was like 25. Yes. Which like, is retirement age for ballet it's dancers. It's about it. That's You're done around that time. Yeah. It's you and tennis players. <laughs> Not a long life <laughs> in the dance field. So yeah, I was a ballet dancer. I've danced in the Nutcracker a million times, and I have a degree in in dance <laughs> that's degree in dance. that's really fantastic what are you doing now i am actually a lecturer at san francisco state university in kinesiology and i teach functional anatomy because that's what my master's degree is in absolutely fantastic there you go well we couldn't have asked for a better person to come on the show uh quite literally an expert and uh we look forward to getting your uh your thoughts on today's subject yeah, well as it is the price of admission for being a ballerina how many times have you done the Nutcracker? Oh my gosh, I don't know if you can put a number on it. <laughs> There's so many performances in one season that you do, and so over years, I mean, it's got you have to have done it. Yeah, I've probably danced it about a hundred times. Oh my goodness! Different roles, but you know, over wow. the years, yeah. Like, so you've been in say twenty productions of it, or oh, twenty productions of it? Uh, no, I've only done it with three different ballet companies, but okay. years within those companies. So gotcha, gotcha. yeah, return performance because years over years they don't necessarily change much. They keep the no, same. They don't change very often. Once one company has a production, they stick with that production for a while. Eventually, you know, they try and spice it up. If there's a new artistic director or there's a new choreographer, they'll come in and give their own rendition of it. But it's just, it it's just swapping out the bodies, basically. Yeah. And <laughs> the teaching costumes. Him. Yeah. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Cool. Very cool. Yeah, it's kind of one of those things where it is now a staple of pretty much any ballet company. Absolutely. Uh, but it wasn't always that way. That's really only, like, within the past 50 years or so. Yeah, 50, 60 years, so. Yeah, yeah, the first production was actually considered a failure. By pretty much everyone involved, by the people who had reviewed it, and it was uh, it was something of an afterthought almost. It was kind of tagged on to a whole other production that was being done that was even uh, given a bit more praise. Look where it has come in all of these years. Absolutely. And uh, well, so why don't we dial it back and talk about the origins of the story as we usually do? Right. I find it fascinating because the ballet of the Nutcracker is actually an adaptation of an adaptation. Exactly, yeah. The original story was written by E.T.A. Hoffman, uh, and this is Ernest Theodore Wilhelm Hoffman, who later changed his... Uh, I prefer the way you say it in German. Ernst Theodore Wilhelm Hoffman. <laughs> Hoffman, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's is true. See, I can do um, other accents other than just <laughs> my <laughs> British. It's a good one. It's very good. Yes, yes, yes. I hear, I hear it sounds very tech club German, but it's okay. <laughs> I'm okay with that. Yeah, it sounds like you should own a hundred pair of sunglasses and they all look the same. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> I also use the tanning salons quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. 
I am the most amazing shade of orange right now. <laughs> this is very true, yes. Um, which, totally on a side note, I don't think Hoffman ever had a spray on tan. But. <laughs> no. But. <laughs> he would have looked very out of place in uh, 19th century Germany. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> he was, however, a, a very notable author and, and one who has, I think, really been overlooked uh, in the 20th and 21st century. He, he in his time, um, was heralded as kind of a... Uh, Deranged like... individual? <laughs> <laughs> he was a different, definitely different, um, definitely very polarizing, I think is kind of the word I'm going for. He he, he definitely got people That's talking. That's a soft word for it. Yeah. yeah. Well, he belonged to the German Romantic movement, which was all about envisioning a world kind of the way you wanted it to be, or maybe breaking those kind of social barriers that existed around you and reimagining the way that things should look or should be. And it was very progressive for the time, very forward-thinking, very in line with a lot of the kind of socialist movements that were going on at that time in, in their infancy and how they would develop and later influence the 20th century. But yeah, some of his stuff was just messed up. It was just scary. Because he was writing, you know, some of the first real fantasy literature that was out there. And uh, one of those stories was, of course, the, uh, the Nutcracker and the Mouse King. Which, in that original story, I mean, if you try to tell that to children now... It's, they would probably have yeah. nightmares. No. Yeah, they'd have nightmares for for months. It's yeah. absolutely terrifying. Scared to death of mice. No, no parent would allow that yeah. story to be told to their children. But, but what's so important about that story is there's a whole piece that's left out of the ballet, and we need to talk about that when we talk about this story because it it helps give. It's really kind of the prequel if you think about it to what happens in the ballet. Right. It's what makes the whole thing make sense. Why there's a mouse king. Mm-hmm. Why the Nutcracker even is. T- there to begin with, you know? Yeah, exactly. It, it's kind of like with Star Wars. You know, they, they had this whole great mythology all set up, and they went ahead and made three movies, and then they went back and they, uh, you know, they, they made the prequels. Is everything related back to Star Wars in some way? No, not everything. Not everything. <laughs> but and, most things. And but most things. For, the love of, for the love of all that is holy, we need to, sh- to declare our diplomatic immunity here and understand that we are not condoning nor condemning the prequels to the Star Wars saga, <laughs> we are just noting the, their significance in laying the groundwork for the Holy Trilogy, as we like to refer to it in the nerd world. Yes, yeah, so Brian please, is also our PR person, if you haven't noticed. Okay. Please uh, abstain from any sort of hate mail <laughs> <laughs> or obscene pictures. Thank you. <laughs> I think my point is, however, that the whole idea of this origin story, I honestly think is actually a lot more interesting than the actual production that that I've seen on stage with, of the Nutcracker. And obviously, like we've said, this is a totally different version. This is an adaptation that's very watered down, much more kid-friendly. It has very few elements of the original Hoffman story that are in it that are true to what Hoffman was trying to get a po- across, the point that he was trying to get the, across. The darker nature of humanity, essentially, is, is what he was talking about, is what he was writing about. Yeah, and I think that's one of the most interesting things about doing this, uh, what we're talking <clears throat> about here, is, is his message is completely not in the current production of the Nutcracker, and being a dancer in it, had no idea that this the actual story that he was trying to convey kind of changes it for you. yeah absolutely but it's interesting because later adaptations have tried to draw on more of those elements and pull them in and i've seen particularly on television right some of the these later more grandiose productions that have been done that are a little more frightening a little more dark but they always end the same way they always have this kind of happy ending where clara who is the protagonist in the in the in the story wakes up and everything was just a dream that's not true in hoffman's story it's not a dream 
it's not a dream. It's reality. And yeah. it's a reality that she's trying to escape because her parents are, for lack of a better word, abusive. And I think it maybe would help our, our listeners if we just kind of gave a quick summary of Hoffman's sure. original story. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. So the, the whole Christmas Eve element is definitely there. Hoffman, who was born in East Prussia, which is now part of Russia, but was originally under German control, was a German nationalist at the time, right? And he was writing about a German family. Uh, he was writing about the, the, the Stahlbaum family, or the Steel Tree family. And uh, just the very name alone shows how rigid and, and unflexible they were, how their imagination wasn't really present, and how here we have this great big Christmas dinner and feast, and people are coming together for a party, um, where young Clara, who is actually known Marie. as Marie in this uh, rendition of it, is given this beautiful gift, the, the Nutcracker. And so far, it doesn't sound all that different from the later adaptations. Given it to her, of course, by her mysterious godfather, Drosselmeyer. Drosselmeyer, yeah. To find out is um, magical in nature. He is. Well, the eye patch says it all. <laughs> yeah. Well, the magic tricks, right? You yeah. Know? And the eye patch. And the eye, well, and the, and the, and the, and the eye patch. <laughs> well, yes. Drosselmeyer is, a, is an interesting figure because he is that kind of um, typical crazy uncle. The one who comes on in and kind of lets you do all the things that you're not allowed to do because your parents are too straight-laced and they won't let you have all the fun toys and do all the fun things. Right. And, and in Hoffman's story, uh, Drosselmeyer is actually very unaffectionate with the kids, which is not true with what's currently but yeah he's the he's like the the godfather that comes in and and is trying to get the kids imagination to be opened up and get them out of this rigid society norms. exactly and she she is about the age of seven i think and she has an older brother who's who's eight uh who you know through playing with the toys in a rough fashion as the young boy would right right ends up damaging her her nutcracker that's been given to her who she then uses a ribbon from her hair to to fix up Again, it's, like a, it's like a tourniquet, essentially. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Again, all elements that you find in the later stories. And then it takes a complete and total turn. Exactly. Uh, because as she goes to bed that night, goes back out to her toy chest, where now all these great toys that she's received have been put. And in the toy... Uh, actually, more, it's more of a cabin, I think it's described yeah. as. Um, she sees that the, the Nutcracker is actually starting to come alive. And she just, you know, thinks of it more as just a flight of her imagination and nothing that's real. But it turns out, there's this whole war now going on that she's awoken to. And the toys have come to life, and they're being led by the Nutcracker. And He's awoken like these bunch of toy soldiers who are... It's, it's like Toy Story, yeah. only creepy as hell. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, the, the Rat Very King comes and out. Very well, German. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> these are... This is the home of some of the greatest uh, children's stories in the world. Hansel and Gretel. Yeah. Oh, wait, the kids died in that. Uh, no, yeah. they didn't die. The witch died in that one. Oh, that's right. But the kids almost died. Um, but They're let's talk about um, <laughs> the version of... Uh, his version of Cinderella, Ashton Poodle. Uh, the Brothers Grimm, where they, they had the, the doves peck the eyes out of the uh, stepsisters at the end. Or how about Snow White, where they make the evil queen dance on hot coals until she dies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all so. great stuff. <laughs> Imagery that I have no idea why Disney left out. I know. I mean, seriously. You know, this is prime revenue that they're missing out on. Oh, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> But I think that to this point, though, whereas in the later productions, you actually find that Claire, or in this case, Marie, shrinks down and joins this world, this world is all going on around her. And she's still, you know, 
full normal. size. Yeah, yeah, normal. So here's this terrible fight going on with the with the rats, uh, and she actually gets drawn into it because she throws a, a shoe at the the rat to force him to flee, but in doing so, slips and falls, and actually falls into the cabinet and cuts her arm rather seriously. Yes, on the broken glass. On yeah. the broken glass, and that's like, ooh, where are we going with this? Okay, mm-hmm. well, it gets worse um, because she she wakes up and her parents who are tending her her wound in the morning. She tells the story to and. Uh, they refuse to even acknowledge her and scorn her for even suggesting something so crazy and, and ludicrous and out of out of her mind. But later it comes back that uh, this Drosselmeyer reappears almost magically, if you will, and he's kind of sitting up on top of her of her clock and kind of preventing it from moving in a normal fashion. Uh, and in doing so, this whole magical world kind of reappears and that's when you have the kind of bartering that's going on the the little rat king comes back out and he has the nutcracker hostage and he's demanding her other sweets and toys and in doing so he would release the the nutcracker to her right he's trying to he wants her all of her sweets and her her dolls she has to she has to sacrifice all of her dolls and she's bawling in the story crying yeah. and it's a seven-year-old dress it's a, if yeah. you think about it it's it, the rat king is trying to rob her of her childhood if you think like all the things that make childhood whimsical and, and fun you know and this is a seven-headed rat king. yeah right very gross g- gruesome and in some versions king. it was like you cut the head off and very hydra like like more heads would attach <laughs> on yeah so which yeah. is actually kind of cool yeah it's, <laughs> it's kind of nasty yeah and yet the story continues Right. And I, I should state, however, just before this, Drossemar does tell her the whole story, the origin story that leads up to all of this, and how and around the Nutcracker came into existence, which all takes place in this kind of mystical world where there's another king and queen uh, who have a princess, who have a daughter or princess. What was her name again? The princess, it was a weird name that started with a P. Uh, um, Prilipet? But yeah, something like that. Uh, Prilipat? Prilipat. Okay, we're going to go with that. Has the, the Princess Pillipat, who is actually tricked by the, the uh, rat queen in this r- part of the story. Yes. That's the, ma- the central kind the of... The mouse queen, the mother of the, of the rat king. Essentially, yeah, yes. exactly. Who, her children were all killed by the king uh, yes. for eating some of the fat that was going to be put into a sausage for breakfast. It's like, come <laughs> Blood on. Blood sausage in there. Because that, that's the reason to start a war and <laughs> yeah. commit genocide is for your breakfast. Because right. you didn't get bacon. Exactly. So she's quite upset and she curses this uh, young princess and turns her into this absolutely hideous looking creature with a long white beard and a big wide mouth. Mm-hmm. And um, from no no help from the circle of cats that was put around her to help protect her shocking cats don't make the best guards i'm sorry but i get it they weren't supposed to keep away mice but my cats will do nothing they'll just sit around all day and i'm sure that's exactly what happened was why she ended up why she was tangent aside she then becomes this this hideous thing and and drosselmeyer is also a part of this story which is so interesting he then uh enlists the help of uh another gentleman to go and travel for years trying to find this mystical nut yeah, fifteen years. They're on, they're on their him and an astronomer or something. Like I think that? it was a court astrologer actually. Yeah, yeah. astrologer <laughs> are on this fifteen-year journey looking for the nut. And they they the finally end up finding it nut. when they come the back. When nut. they yeah, when they give up, and right. it turns out it was in the possession of his uh, brother. Yeah, and or was it his nephew? It um, his well his nephew his nephew is his brother's son. Got it. So it's his brother who has the nut. Ah, and there's only one person who can crack this nut. And all these different people try, and finally the nephew comes up to do so. Yes. And succeeds and restores her beauty. Exactly. And 
part of the myth is that uh, upon completion of this, he'll take seven steps backwards. And on that seventh step, he actually trips over the Mouse Queen and then ends up getting cursed himself and essentially turned into this hideous creature like the Nutcracker. Right. He had to complete the seven steps backward. And if he did, everything was going to be good. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He trips on the Mouse Queen. And instead of being grateful uh, for, you know, saving her (laughs) and helping her restore her beauty, uh, instead he is banished from the castle because he's a hideous creature. Right. The king was very malicious. Yeah. Drosomile hadn't done all of this. He was going to be beheaded. Yeah. Was why he went on this 15-year journey. So pretty messed up It's a really gruesome story, the hard nut. Yeah, and, and then the story just keeps going, but we'll just we'll, we'll quickly kind of finish it up here, because essentially mm. she convinces her young brother to give a, a small toy sword to her nutcracker that she's now freed, who then goes and successfully defeats the Rat King and mm-hmm. cuts off all of his heads and takes all of the crowns and gives them to her as proof that he has performed this deed. Uh, and she is absolutely enamored with this, and then everything seems to go back to normal until uh, he kind of agrees to marry her, essentially. Yeah, she gets a seven year old betrothed at seven. <laughs> yeah. Nothing messed up about that. Uh, and then a year later, a year and a month, I think it was later, she then disappears into this fanciful land, this amazing land, which they, they talk a little bit about, they reference a little bit in the story, which obviously is kind of the portion of the modern story where they, they pull into the snow land and the Christmas land and they have all the different dances. And then she leaves her family, no word, just says goodbye. She's gone. And he does carefully state that. Years later, they eventually got married. So essentially, he waits till she grows up right. and then marries her. And she becomes queen of that land. And first of all, the whole long bit of him defeating the Mouse King, that happens in like the first 15 minutes of the uh, Of the bridge uh, version, yeah, yeah. The, of the later adaptation. Yeah. So there's a lot of backstory that gets cut out, particularly the whole story of how he became a nutcracker to begin with. Now, the one part you missed is he eventually gets turned into a human in the oh. Hoffman version, right? Yeah, I should say that. The she... curse gets reversed after killing the Mouse King, I think, right? Yes, he, he gets transformed into the prince. That's what... why it's Nutcracker Prince. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But for most of it, he, he is the Nutcracker, whereas the other way around in the, in the later adaptations, he becomes the prince pretty much halfway through. In the ballets? In the ballets, yeah. yeah. He becomes the prince. By the end of the first act, he's the prince. Right. Exactly. So so pretty stark differences. But it kind of speaks to the time, though, right? And it speaks to the world that, that Hoffman was growing up in. And I'll just state very briefly that he had a really horrible and tragic life. He could not find happiness no matter where he was. And he was at a time right when Napoleon was invading uh, most of Europe and pretty much put everywhere he tried to live under French control and kicking yeah. him out of the various jobs that he well, held. This was the imperialist age, right? I mean, you're not just colonially speaking. I mean, you had Germany was beginning to nationalize for the first time uh, pretty much ever. Uh, yeah, a lot of Eastern Europe, uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire was uh, achieving its probably the height of its power at yeah. this point. So you have all these different things going on in Europe that to a person who's not used to nationalized countries, who is used to just having kind of like your small little region... I mean, he said he was a German nationalist, so he would have supported at least one common nation amongst all the Germans, but not necessarily an empire, you know, not necessarily a monarchy. So, now you have all these, this, I can understand why there's this disenchantment with the world, especially considering all the bad things that happened to him. Yeah, too. He could never really find any happiness in his life, and and it was always one thing after another. And we're not going to go into a whole lot of detail on that. That would be a whole other episode, which I think we should definitely revisit him in the future because he is really uh, quite fascinating. But it does speak to the time, and it speaks to his style of writing, and it speaks to that idea that imagination is so important, and that putting barriers and bounds on yourself is something that he wanted to avoid. And 
as a child who grew up in a whole family of lawyers, he himself being trained as a lawyer who was used to the law and used to strict rules and used to a, a way and a procedure of things, I can understand why he would want to rebel, why he would want to kind of branch out from that. Exactly. And, and that's what the Nutcracker story was really about, was that he was trying to create this story to tell the middle-class upper society parents you can't stifle, you should not be stifling your children's imagination and that the children need to be fighting and rebelling against this and, and to open their eyes to this whole world of imagination and trying to break away with that, which was really interesting because that is completely lost in what is the current day rendition right. of yeah. Nutcracker. And that really is what Hoffman is, mm -hmm. you know, growing up in a family of nationalists who then... Right he himself breaks away from that mold and, and becomes something different. As he, best he could. It, it, as best he could. And that is uh, so very fascinating. And it, it's something that is kind of sad that gets lost. But yeah. It I, is. I, I think that uh, we brought it back, though. Yeah. Doing it, our job. And in, in a way, you're talking about how you said he was a German romantic writer. The more I think about it, the more he's talking about it, he's really projecting his lost childhood into these characters, right? You know, and wishing that these characters could break away and do that. So... Uh, very true of the style of the period when it comes to literature absolutely as, as well yeah and then we'd see another jump forward with it right and yeah. that comes with alexander dumas who is of course a very famous author again of the count of monte cristo one, one thing i want to add to this real quick sure there were two alexander dumas there is the one we know of the one who is the author of the count of monte cristo and the three musketeers there's also his son who is also named alexander dumas and uh, he is referred to uh, apparently in in the french he's referred to as Alexandre Dumas Père, hmm. being the father, and then his son is known as Alexandre Dumas Fille. I said Dumas, didn't I? Shame. Shame on me. Shame <coughs> on me okay. and my French heritage. Shame. Yeah. Well, I tried to make it sound all fancy when I tried to say it in French at first, so it doesn't... Whatever. <laughs> you know, we'll just leave it, let it go. But that's a pretty important piece, too, because in his version is really where you see the groundwork for Tchaikovsky's ballet. Absolutely, because it is essentially just a, a watered-down version, a more kid-friendly version, something that would be easier to present on stage, which I kind of see and understand why they took it in the route they did, uh, even though it does lose a lot of those elements of Hoffman's original story. Sure. And how it kind of gets to Russia makes sense, because if we're talking about the 19th century, and we're talking about Europe, and we're talking about the gradual fall of these monarchies, and the reshaping of the political and socio-economic environment within the entire uh, sure. European continent, the relationships between certain factions and certain countries and certain empires um, were very much in the form of alliances, right? So, yeah. and there was always a close alliance between France and Russia. Well, not always. No, no, but, but, okay. But at this point in time, there was, and why that is even more important is Dumas. Even though he was not a wealthy man until later on in his life, he had inherited uh, his father's title of being a marquis. Right. So he was automatically a member of the French aristocracy, even though if he was poor until about his late 20s, early 30s or so. Um, so because of that, you immediately have this, this cultural connection and that his social stance probably helped it make its way into Russia. Sure. Oh. It did. So in terms of thinking along the ideas of the Industrial Revolution, Russia was really kind of moved forward with that with, of course, Peter the Great, who had much stronger ties and connections with Western Europe. Um, to the detriment of kind of his Slavic ties, right? Which was a problem for some people in Russia. Uh, but the aristocracy of Russia was very closely connected with that of the aristocracy of, of France, for example. And there you have that, like you were saying, that connection, how it kind of gets brought in. So much so that it was uh, commonplace within the, the, the Russian court to learn French. Yeah. You know, 
uh, it was not uncommon for them to be bilingual in that regard. French was the language of di- diplomacy in the in the 19th century, so it was uh, it was common in many countries in Europe, but uh, particularly this was a big movement bringing it into uh, into Russia. Right, and what's interesting also about that is bringing in the um, the choreographer was Petapa was he was brought over into Russia on a one year contract to be a. Uh, the a choreographer for the Imperial Ballet, and so he was French. Oh, Marius, he, of course, yeah. Marius. Um, actually, if it would be Marius. Oh my lord, this yeah. man, this Marius man, and his, and, and his <laughs> production of of Les Mis. Les Mis. I was in yes. Les Misérables recently, so uh, we were told how to pronounce all the names, and it was it's not Marius, it's Marius. Actually, Sorry. technically, I think the S would be silent too, but Malu sounds kind of. Well, Ladies and gentlemen, the Napoleon Bonaparte of grammar. Thank you, Eric. <laughs> Thank you so much. Let's just get on with it, shall we? <laughs> oh, you were saying... Uh, they... uh, Pedapa was brought over from, specifically from France, over into Russia for only a one-year contract, but then ended up staying the rest of his life there, because uh, he, he dies pretty shortly after the Nutcrackers right. now, who done. Com- but who commissioned Tchaikovsky to write the Nutcrackers? Because wasn't it commissioned by... Uh, I want to say it was the Moscow Ballet, but I don't think they were even in existence uh, at that point. Nope. Uh, so, Petapa is the choreographer in the, uh, of the Nutcracker, the original Nutcracker, and he was commissioned by the director of the Empirical Theaters in St. Petersburg to come over for just one year and to create some ballets with Tchaikovsky. Um, and they ended up doing the three, the Swan Lake, Sleeping Beauty, and the Nutcracker. Um, and he was only supposed to be there for a year, and him, Petapa being French brought a lot of these Western stories over into Russia, into the Empirical Ballet School. There you go. So that's the connection between how yeah. it got, finally got over to Russia. I love to mention that, this is a small little side note, Tchaikovsky's score for Sleeping Beauty um, was used in the Disney film. Pieces of it were used in it, and uh, it's the basis for the, the main song of that. Well, parts of the score was actually used in Fantasia for the Nutcracker as well. They, mm-hmm. they pulled that over. Yeah, ex- exactly. So clearly Disney had a soft spot for Tchaikovsky. Well, Tchaikovsky, you know, he, he was really interesting because when he was studying music, he studied it very much under the leadership of a German composer. Uh, so he understood the Western style of music. He heavily influenced his future career and, and the music that he would compose. Perfect combination, these two, I think, that they would really work well together. Mm-hmm. Um, what I kind of got is that Marius is a very... Um, very demanding individual though very much wanted things his way and kind of had a way of laying it out he's um actually in in dance history he's he is one of the most important ballet choreographers um in in history him and balanchine who we'll later get into are some of the most important uh male choreographers in, in the history of ballet so yes he's he's very strict and he's accredited with a lot of bringing forth of what we know in ballet to be today which is what makes that actually makes sense as to why the nutcracker is such an important piece in ballet because you've had two of those major people have their their creative hands exactly. on it. Exactly. Yeah. Well, we've got to talk about <clears throat> Tchaikovsky because he is a, a towering figure of the time and, and a legend uh, not only in Russia but around the world. And not unlike Hoffman has a terribly tragic life. Uh, I think it's worth just kind of diving a little bit into into who he was just so we can understand a little bit behind the man who created this iconic music for this production. I mean, he he growing up had a very close attachment to his mother and had a very difficult childhood because he himself was very fragile. Uh, he would fall to pieces 
in just a moment. In fact, his, his nanny, who was responsible for his care a lot of the time, nicknamed him the Glass Boy, because just a moment's notice, he could break and shatter into a million pieces. Um, he showed some behavior of, dare I say, kind of borderline psychosis. I mean, he had a lot of issues going on. And the decision very early on was to send him to boarding school and separate him from his mother and separate him from this deep attachment, only to have her die of cholera um, just a, a short time later. That was a very traumatic episode in his life. It was something that would ironically later catch up to him uh, in his own death, where it is believed that he, he himself may have uh, died from the symptoms of cholera. But he had a... A training, not as a musician initially, but as a civil servant. Again, like Hoffman, totally detached from what he would end up eventually doing. But at the age of 22, decided that that was what he wanted to do. That was the path that he wanted to follow. And he had always experimented with music at a young age, but he had never really committed himself to it until he would later end up taking that on under his under his studies. And he was a very passionate person. He wrote a lot of poetry. He wrote not just ballet, but he wrote operas, and he wrote chamber music and concertos, and uh, beautiful symphonies. And all of this was done truly hiding who he was. His public image was one thing, but who he actually was in private life was very, very different. And this is something that, even if you go to Russia today, there is kind of an effort to put him in the closet as it were, because we're talking about the fact that he was, at least in his personal life, an open homosexual. But his image was, was very different. Because of at, course. Well, at this time, it was against the law to be homosexual. You'd be sent off to the gulag. Well, well I mean, it's, it's against the law now, too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. Oh, that's true. Yes, we're still talking about Russia. Sorry. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's still a problem. And that it makes sense as to why there's recent efforts to quiet that aspect of it. Because he was so... Uh, influential on history and on the, the arts of course you don't want a, that piece uh coming out no pun intended so <laughs> <laughs> but you know this is something that he really fought with his entire life and brought him to the brink of suicide you know more than one occasion he attempted to marry a couple of times successfully did so once I say successfully in that he actually made it to the altar and was able to get married the problems would continue after the obvious issues with compatibility there naturally right? yes it just wasn't going to work at one point he even attempted suicide by waiting in the river in st petersburg uh in the middle of winter and attempting to catch pneumonia and very nearly died of the of the symptoms because he was just so fed up with life but couldn't take it to the extreme so he kind of maybe decided he was going to drown himself i don't know but he didn't quite finish the job and was hoping that pneumonia would would do it for him wow um yeah he has a very long relationship though with with a woman who is very key and influential to his success because he was running out of money. The wife that he ended up actually marrying uh, obviously found out that he was that he was gay and was more or less blackmailing him and essentially trying to get as much money from him as possible. And at this time, he didn't make any money doing what he did. It was it may have been on its rise in terms of prestige, but it wasn't something that you were making a ton of money with. And uh, he ended up having to actually develop a relationship with a very wealthy widow of a, of a railroad tycoon uh, by the name of uh, Nadezhna von Beck, who he starts this 14-year relationship with in which the two have very little contact with one another throughout most of it, but are pretty much pen pals. They're writing to each other. She loves his music and is moved by it and sends him tons and tons and tons of money. I mean, 
about 6,000 rubles every year to keep him going, to keep him doing the work that she loves so much. And Which was a lot of money back then. A lot of money. And when it becomes very apparent that her expectations of him become something more, something that he cannot give to her, the relationship is is broken off after 14 years. Um, and this is a, a right around the time when the, when the Nutcracker would be produced. So here is a person who's now hurting for money, who's had this very difficult life, uh, who now his sister has also just passed away, and he's approached from the partner that he's had for these two wonderful successes to create uh, the kind of the end of their trilogy, if you will, his, his last opera and his, his next ballet uh, production, The Nutcracker. Right. And this was done in, uh, again, this was developed in 1891, and it premiered the week before Christmas in 1892. And that's really kind of the reason why it's associated with Christmas. Very much how Peter Pan is associated with Christmas, because Peter Pan opened, like, December 27th in, like, 1905. Other than the fact that it takes place on Christmas Eve, that's kind of really it. I mean, it's really not a Christmas-like story at all. It's a very un-Christmas story, actually. It's probably the most famous un-Christmas story ever told. So, uh, you know, there you have it. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not where we have it, because when when it actually premiered, uh, that Total night, that, that night, I can only imagine, because the, the opera that opened um, just before it, you know, started very late in the evening. Yeah, this was part of a two-act production. This was, right. the Nutcracker was one half of what would have been a very long evening of performance. Yeah, it it was, was said to have been around midnight, when the Nutcracker actually went on stage. Yeah. And their only really big performer who played the Sugar Plum th- Fairy, I, I, I'm forgetting her name. Antoinetta del Era. No idea if I said that right. Was the Sugar Plum Fairy. And, we'll allow it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Napoleon. <laughs> and I'll tell you, she came on, you know, after midnight, after this crowd is probably exhausted and ready to go to bed so making people wait yeah until the very last minute because she's in the end of the second half right she's like the the prima ballerina is you know in most ballets is is there from the beginning and 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 in the nutcracker one of the big complaints is she doesn't come on until a not till the second act but she doesn't dance until the end of the second act she probably didn't even get there until like half past 11. <laughs> it's true. And <clears throat> to make matters, I mean, so no wonder it was a failure because people were just exhausted, you know? Um, I wouldn't want to sit through that either. Well, let's talk about that first production because there was a lot of things that they did there that they cut out in later times. Um, and Cass, why don't, why don't you tell us a little bit more about the big changes that were made later? What, what did they do in the first time around that just didn't work? In the first ballet? Yeah, the first um, first production of this. Well, most of what we see today is pretty close to what Petapa originally choreographed. Um, his rendition of the Nutcracker, though, is nowhere close to what Hoffman wrote about. The sure. whole second act is Total almost departure. completely different than what he wrote. But that was from Dumas' version of it. But even in Dumas' version of it, there is no Sugar Plum Fairy. There's no Cavalier. Um, there's none of these dances. She no, none of these iconic things that we associate with it. No, but they, but as we were talking about a little earlier before the show, she's she's traveling through these kingdoms, and some of them are Chinese, and some of them are Arabic, and some of them are Russian influenced. So that you can see the influence of where he got the second act from. But this is all taking place for Clara's enjoyment 
by the sugar plum fairy, she puts this on and says, you know, you did all of this great work, you helped save this prince, here is your reward. And in the, you know, in Hoffman's book, none of that, none of that is there. So originally what Petapar choreographed is pretty close to what we see today. There are variations now that of the variations are now trying to go back to Hoffman's story. Hmm. That's the difference is when people are trying to go back and be clearer and truer to what Hoffman and Dumas actually wrote about in The Nutcracker and the Mouse King. Well, Interesting. One of the big criticisms that I remember reading about was the fact that they actually used child performers. Right. Which was not done before. Children weren't in the ballet. And so in Pedapa, he recruited from the Empirical Ballet in St. Petersburg, and Clara was a child, was like a 10-year-old child, and, you know, Fritz was a child, and there's all the children. And so the main character, um, he changes the name. Uh, it gets changed from Marie to Clara, because uh, Clara in Hoffman's book was one of her dolls that actually saves the Nutcracker oh. in the book. So that character was merged to create, paid upon, merged those two to create right. Clara. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and so Clara is a child, which was never done before. There, and, the you know, she wasn't a prima ballerina, she was a child. And sure, so she that was a was, student. I'm sure that might have been an insult. <laughs> it was kind yeah, the audience wasn't too proud, wasn't too happy with that. They had to wait till midnight for their main prima ballerina to go on stage. Um, but that's still today. This is the children's ballet. This is what children wait all year to audition for sure. to try and be Clara or to try and be in the Nutcracker. And so sure. that, that's still true. But in uh, later renditions, trying to go back to Hoffman and Dumas um, is when the adult casting of Clara and the Nutcracker are come in. And that was introduced in 1919. was the first attempt to actually move Bring it away back, from Tatebot and go back to Dumas. Right, with, was it Gregor? Gorski! <clears throat> Alexander Gorsky uh, was the one that went back in 1919, and he decided to try and be truer to the original story and cast the role of Clara and the Prince as adults. As adults. As right. experienced and skilled. Yes. Dancers. Dancers of the ballet. And in between this, what ended up showing success was Tchaikovsky uh, edited down the whole score to the Nutcracker down to eight pieces that he called the Nutcracker Suite, of course, and that, or uh, uh, Opus 71A. And uh, that is what ended up becoming the, the majorly popular thing, because it was a really distilled version yeah. of, uh, of the story. Afterwards, Tchaikovsky was kind of embarrassed by the whole production. He, he really did not like it at all and tried to distance himself from it. And thankfully, he only had a few more years to live with it, sadly. But uh, he would go on to gain even more success, though, from the actual suite that was produced of this. And that was something that was redeeming for him. That was, that was great. And sadly, just a few years later, however, he would die. Uh, shortly after you know coming to America and then opening up Carnegie Hall, I mean, being the first person to lead a symphony in Carnegie Hall, I mean that that's an amazing that's an honor. Incredible, yeah, no kidding. And I think it, you know, I don't know if it was really apparent to him at the time. Obviously, it was an honor, but I don't think he really really understood how big that was because now we know Carnegie Hall after you know a hundred plus years and and all the amazing performances that have gone on there, and to have him open that. It's pretty significant. So I forgot to tell you that, guys, it's when I was in New York, I went to Carnegie Hall. I had dinner right across the street from it at this nice little Italian restaurant right across the way. It was lovely. And it's I like your Mecca. <laughs> it's true. And you went on pilgrimage to New <clears throat> York to see, see Broadway, I just, too. I just walked by Carnegie Hall and I was like, damn. <laughs> 
This is what it looks like on the outside. Wow. You know? And then you uh, got up on stage, and you were dragged out by security. I was dragged out by security, definitely. And beaten. Yeah. Uh, but that's repeatedly. part of the New York experience. I mean, you're going to go to New York. you got to get dragged <laughs> get out and beat beaten somehow. Totally. Okay. Yeah. Of course. Absolutely. So, hey, why not do it at Carnegie Hall? But uh, I, I will, and this is kind of a sad note, and I, I don't mean to derail the great conversation we're having, but uh, when I said he only had to live with it for a few years, it's very true, because he would die shortly afterwards. After being recognized, however, by Tsar Alexander III, and given a lifetime stipend, which would, you know, I think probably continue over to his family, although that pretty much ended in 1917. But you'll find that um, he was finally getting his dues and finally getting his recognition right at the time of his death when he dies of cholera. So go figure. Yeah. Uh, 54, I believe he was when he died. And it's so yeah. sad because cholera, which was a huge epidemic in St. Petersburg, because, of course, cholera is most commonly transmitted through water, and the water supplies were contaminated pretty much everywhere in the sure. city. Um, he, there's lots of tales around his death and how it actually happened. Some people speculate that maybe he was murdered or killed or uh, was forced to commit suicide because of concealing his homosexuality and the fact that it was now becoming more apparent. Others say he was just not careful. He was depressed. He was sad. He was somewhat in ill health due to other gastrointestinal issues that he was having at the time. And he may have just been, you know, lazy and, and drank a, a you know cup of unboiled water and contracted cholera and, and died quickly as a result of his already ailing health and his the mental stress that it had put on him for years and years. Sure. I mean, you see pictures of him. He looks like he's in his 70s or 80s. Yeah. Extreme stress put on him. And it's it's a sad end, but he continues, though, now as this legacy. And his music, of course, is what is so powerful behind this production. Absolutely. Obviously, the yeah. performers make it all work, right? Without that, it's just a concert. But you on can, the other but, side, you have to have the music to make those movements, to make that art flow. You yeah. have to have something stimulating. Well, the music speaks to his genius, because you could literally, even without seeing the choreography, you can just put the music on, and you're immediately kind of transported to these Absolutely. different worlds that are being created throughout the course of the story. Can we also mention real quick um, Liv Ivanov? Because as his assistant to, to uh, Petipa. Mary's Petipa, exactly, mm-hmm. he had to take over. Petipa's health was on the decline, and uh, he himself would also uh, die a few years later, back in, uh, I think it was 1910 is when he died. But he was unable to complete the work and had to give direction to uh, Ivanov to, to complete it, who was also himself a very skilled individual, not like he was his number two man, so to speak. He wasn't, you know, on the bottom rings. This guy was also experienced. And there's some debate as to how much he actually did or how much direction was actually given. I yeah. don't know. What, what do you think, Cass? I uh, think it was kind of a combination of both. Well, it's, so it, that's why sometimes it's it's referred to as pay to pause nutcracker or Ivanov nutcracker. Because mm. there's a debate on how much influence pay to pause uh, was dictating to Ivanov and how much freedom Ivanov was was like uh, okay I'm gonna go I'm gonna go this way but Petipa is coined as being the one that laid the scenario out the chronological order of all of the scenario and Ivanov was the one that went in and did the choreography and the staging under a really direct rigid hand of Petipa. Hmm, gotcha well from here <clears throat> let's talk about how the production makes its way to the United States uh, where it really took off. So it was first, it was performed in England in 1934. But then, interestingly enough, I didn't know this until my research for the episode, it debuted in San Francisco before it debuted in, in New York. So when I see these ads of the San Francisco Ballet doing the Nutcracker, I was like, holy crap, we had the first one 
We did in 1944. Yeah. Yeah, we had the first full-length version. There was a bridge versions that were done, uh, but the first full-length version of the original Nutcracker was by San Francisco Ballet in 1944. Right, and it was done under the artistic director, William Christensen, who was the student of the great George Balanchine. Yeah, he, he was a student of Balanchine. Balanchine being one of the most iconic, important influences in ballet still today. Mm-hmm. Um, he is the father of New York City Ballet and started, uh, was the artistic director of the Amer- American Ballet, which is now known as American Ballet Theater, two of the best companies Wow. In the United States. Absolutely. Yeah, unbelievable. I also heard he was a hard man to work under. He was a perfectionist. He was a perfectionist. He changed the world of, of ballet when he came over. He completely changed it and morphed it into what we see today, which is the very skinny, very young ballet dancers. Before mm. him, more well-rounded, full-figured women were ballet dancers until he came along. And now we have the uh, the, the typical dancer that you see today was because of his influence. Yeah. I think I would have preferred the full figure, to be totally honest. <laughs> I kind of would have, too, actually. Um, but it, the story gets more interesting from there because, yes, there was a success of the 1944 production. But then 10 years later, Balanchine himself had pitched doing the Nutcracker for the New York City Ballet, as you were saying. Yes. And... He had uh, been given only $40,000 to do this production. He spent 25 of it on the 40-foot tree that was in the opening production of the, of the play. Wow. wow. So everybody on the board was convinced this was going to be a flop and that he was nuts. The show ended up costing $80,000. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, yeah. And everyone thought, everyone but Balanchine was convinced that the company was going to go bankrupt uh, because of the show. And it uh, turns out, uh, of course, the show was a tremendous success. Um, so much so that it earned him the cover of Time that year uh, for his contributions. And um, it's now pretty much been a staple of the New York City Ballet every single year since then. So much to the point where if there's no Nutcracker, they're not getting their funding. Basically. Yeah. I know how they could have saved the money. Do it at Rockefeller Center. Those Use the ice. Christmas tree they have already got out there. They do it at Christmas time every <laughs> year anyway. Ice would be interesting. And actually, I think some people there, have done it. I think there is. Yeah. There you go. And they probably do it right there, I'll tell you. It'd be kind of cool. Let me just tell you how what this production was, was like. I mean, this is considered the company's cash cow. Uh, I'm, refer- I'm referencing, by the way, an article from New York Magazine that talks about the 50th anniversary of this production. Uh, the original production dedicates more than a month of its winter, all of, it, all of its 90 dancers, two casts of 50 children from the School of American Ballet, 62 musicians, and 32 stagehands to the production. By the end of the season, the company will have danced more than 2,000 performances of it. No other work in the repertory even comes close to the amount of effort they put into this show. This is like their star winning. This is like the breadwinner for the entire year. Do they have complimentary foot replacements? (laughs) No. I think that should be a thing. Foot replacements. That would be amazing in general if that were possible. <laughs> but then it'd be like, Let no, they're using dancers. bionic feet. They're, they're, not, they're not real ballerinas. You can just program that. They're using Bluetooth to get those two feet to coordinate with one another. That would be the exact argument. On a side note, I don't know if you've seen my sister, your other cousin's uh, picture of her feet. Uh-huh. Did you see that? I did. She, I, it she was posted, posted on Facebook and that was... Uh, of her feet. Ow. But, it, yeah, Ow. dancing from the Nutcracker. Yeah. It was disgusting. <laughs> um, Battle scars. <clears throat> what I thought was interesting is that uh, Balanchine being so much of a, perf- a perfectionist, there's a story in this article where Elliot Feld, who ended up eventually playing the Nutcracker Prince later on, uh, when, uh, when he was uh, 12 years old, 
talked about how Balanchine took him up to a dressing room and uh, like walked him through a bit by bit of the mime he's supposed to perform. Well, that's on. one of the most important parts of, of the ballet. Yeah. Can you explain the significance of it? Um, you, you know, at, at, well, so Balanchine uh, played the Nutcracker in Russia. So he defected out of Russia to... France, <laughs> and then eventually to New York. Um, and so the miming, he actually, uh, quote-unquote, stole that from Petapaw. He stole basically two parts of the ballet from Petapaw's original ballet, which is okay to do at the time. There was no copyright laws at Ford. Can you copyright choreography? You can. Oh, interesting. Now, after cool. this. Good to know. Right? So, so, because uh, of but, videotape. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the, the miming um, is basically the big part for the Nutcracker. It's just kind of the only, uh, you know, he mimes and he's telling the whole story in the second act over to the Sugar Plum Fairy. So she learns of the heroism and of, of Clara and then that's when she's like, okay, you will now get this grand um, series of dances to occur. So for the, the miming scene is was really important for that male dancer and so uh, Balanchine was very particular and wanted to make sure it was very clear that he was taking this from pay to pay yeah. and, and I mean mine is exact. An, mine is an incredibly important art form because that's the second piece of this ballet that we don't really consider right everything you're seeing when it's not and it's this full-on dance for like the I don't want to say the downbeats but kind of like the downbeats of the story um, is all told through mime, right? There's no, there's zero dialogue in it. It's music and mime, basically. And um, mime is just such a hard art form because you have to communicate everything mm -hmm. with your body, just like ballet does, but you're doing it with without necessarily the rhythm to, to follow. So it's it's highly expressive, highly stylized. And if it's when it's done well, it's it's brilliant. Right. Yeah. Otherwise, it makes no sense what he's doing. Right. For you know, two minutes dancing around on stage, like what is this guy doing in front of the sugar plum fairy? He right. so he's retelling the entire first act over again, and so for that hmm. part it was really important, and and it, and Balanchine thought it was really important. Right. I find uh, it so interesting that he was a Soviet defector, because just the whole irony of the production being played pretty much in all these key and pivotal moments in history when there was so much conflict going on in the world uh, it really speaks to the power of the performance and its ability to overcome these these preconceptions about other countries and other peoples uh, because if you think about when it was first done in the 1890s uh, that was a time when when the ottoman empire was on the rise when it was invading the Balkans, and you had Russia defending that territory and going in and, and having some rather fierce fights with the uh, with the two of them. And you're telling the story of a German family when the Germans wouldn't lift a finger to help the Russians to push back the Ottomans because they would later maneuver themselves along with the Austro-Hungarian Empire to ally themselves with the Ottomans for the First World War. So you have this absolute irony that here's a story that's totally being accepted by the people who are there to watch it. Right. And then later with the rise of Bolshevism and the rise of communism and the Red Revolution in 1917, now you have the USSR being created and everything that Lenin and, and the foundation of the Soviet Union stood for was in opposition to what was being done on stage, which was during the czarist regime where you had great wealth being displayed by the few and, and, and really kind of being thrown in people's faces. And yet they embrace it and they, they have it on stage 
even though some later versions, like in 1934, when it was actually um, performed in Leningrad, they had to change a few things around. Um, Maria, or, or Clara, excuse me, is now called Masha. To make it more more Russian. Right. And there there are sequences that really highlight, again, the, the Russian and communist revolution that was going on in that country that was still evolving, still changing, and would soon be thrown into the Second World War. Yeah. And while that happens in 1944, what do they do? Well, they bring it to San Francisco and they start doing it here in America, where even though the Russians were our allies at the time, there were still the beginnings of this very deep-rooted anti-communist um, sure. view and philosophy, if you right. will. And to think that 10 years later... Sorry, finish your point. Go ahead. No, no, you were finishing my point. Okay. Go ahead, do it. And to think that 10 years later, they would do it in the dawning of the Cold War in exactly. New York City... Um, with a Soviet defector. With a yeah. Soviet defector. Leading it. Uh, I, I just, it, it's so interesting, the, the fact that it was being thrown all around from all these different parts of the world where you had these two totally opposing views philosophically, and yet it is accepted. And it is heralded as this masterpiece, which it is. And that just speaks to the power of art. Absolutely. No, it totally does. And the story, the the renditions of it have changed in small ways. Um, one thing I find really fascinating to mention that really you're talking about that uh, Hoffman and Tchaikovsky and Dumas, they were all kind of putting their spin on the story in a way that made sense for the, for their own times. And there really there wasn't that much of a difference between any of the, the original work and then toward the, the latter half of the work. It was maybe 80 years between when it was originally written and when it was turned into the ballet, right? Yeah, 1916 right. to 1992. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, or 1816 to 1892. Yeah, so we're talking 65 years or so. No, no, uh, no, no. Seven, oh, 76 16. years, sorry. Uh, I am a nerd. It doesn't mean I'm good at math. Just going <laughs> to say that. Uh, but um, since then, I mean, the fact that, like, uh, some productions are swapping out the idea of the Sugar Plum Fairy altogether and replacing it with the Tsar and Tsarina. You know, that's been going on for uh, at least 20 years. The version I saw about four years ago made a very marked change to that and said that while you're hearing there's Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy, you're not going to see the Sugar Plum Fairy. You'll be seeing the Tsarina uh, instead. Which itself is a swap out from when they originally cut out the Sugar Plum Fairy and replaced it instead with Clara and the Prince taking over that dance. Sure. So it's... <laughs> it, it Swapping it, heads. Exactly. Left and right. Yeah. What and they should have is one where the, where the Rat King does the dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy. I think it would be an interesting twist, because no one would expect you, it, because he's dead, he's dead, right? But, he's, he's but he comes back, and he dances! <laughs> and then all the mice invade again, and just destroy the entire... I was thinking they just all dance, and they all just get along at that point. Oh, well, I don't damn. know if that'd be true to Hoffman. That's true. Until a giant, and he falls into a giant mouse trap, and then dies. And then they wheel him off, and then they bring on the rest <laughs> of the production. <laughs> if only they had a mouse trap, the story would have been over in like five minutes. I know, right? <laughs> if only the mousetrap had been invented. Gosh. Well, Drosselmeyer in Hoffman's book invents the mousetrap. Mind he, blown. He <laughs> invents the mousetrap, and the mice are too smart for it. Because that's what he tries to do. Yeah, interesting. That's the problem with mice. <laughs> yeah. So for those who are interested in the history of nutcrackers in general, um, there is a nutcracker museum in Leavenworth, Washington. And they have a wonderful page on the history of uh, the Nutcracker. I should say, as in the device, not the ballet. 
Uh, and it goes back to at least people have been cracking nuts for at least 8,000 years. Uh, I'd say people have been cracking nuts for a lot longer than that. Yeah. But they probably had designated nut-cracking stones right. about 8,000 years ago. Uh, the oldest known metal nutcracker dates back to the 3rd or 4th century BC. And it was found uh, in, or shown in a museum in, in Italy. Iron lever nutcrackers go back to the 13th century. And the wooden nutcracker that we are now is now famous for what we see in Tchaikovsky's and, of course, Hoffman's original work, were popular around the, by the 15th and 16th centuries. And they were made by woodcarvers in both France and England. But of course, the coup de gras, the wooden soldier nutcrackers, were made by none other than the Germans uh, in the Shocking. 19th, 19th century. So uh, there you have it, folks. That's a very quick tour de force version of the history of nutcrackers. Uh, nutcrackermuseum.com if you're interested in looking up more information on that subject. Also... Uh, real quick, just want to reference some of the, the sources we did for gave for tonight. For me, uh, the New York Magazine, 50 Years of the Nutcracker at the New York City Ballet, was the one that um, I used to talk about Balanchine's production of it. We also have History of the Nutcracker that is advertised on the Moscow Ballet's website itself. It's actually, it's also on nutcracker.com, too, if you're ever interested. Uh, there's a whole website devoted to just this production. I used a couple of the similar resources in addition to that. Also, uh, some articles I found on NPR, which I thought were absolutely fascinating. Um, a, uh, a documentary, a very short documentary that I watched that I thought was excellent, um, which is The Man of Glass. And uh, talks a little bit about Tchaikovsky. And actually has some really fascinating uh, infusion of ballet into the actual documentary. So these moments that are pivotal in his life are actually danced by performers on screen set to his music. And it's, it's, it's actually quite fascinating. And I'll be honest, in addition to a couple of the um, a couple cited articles on uh, on the Wikipedia, uh, I know, but uh, I've got a couple. It's you said it was cited. Yes, so it's okay. Yeah, a couple great cited articles on there. Thank you. We just call it the Oracle of All Knowledge, right? That's what that's, at least that's what I call it. We shouldn't do that. No, no, we probably shouldn't. No. Uh, okay. <laughs> Except for the Chuck Norris page. <laughs> That's all 100% accurate. I can verify that because I've actually been attacked by Chuck Norris once. It's true. I didn't even survive. Most people don't know that his he has a third fist in his beard. Just, you know, to figure. Pops right out. Yep, it does. <clears throat> it does indeed. Um, did you have anything you wanted to reference? Or we got it all? Um, so some of my references about George Balancing is from the New York City Ballet website. There's a book, I can't pronounce the author at all, that I downloaded uh, from iTunes that's a really great book about the history of Hoffman and Dumas and how that merged together. Um, I don't know if you want to <laughs> try and say this translated name. So, um, yeah, it's actually, literally, it's both books consolidated together. And it is, oh, wow. <laughs> um, uh, Hwashim... Nugroshil. I'm probably butchering that. Oh, I'm sure you are, but that's okay. Uh, but it's the Penguin Classics uh, publishing mm -hmm. of it, uh, and it's it says right on the front, E.T.A. Hoffman and Alexandre Dumas. Um, Great backstory of the you know uh, where I got a this, lot of yeah, it. the introduction by Jack Zipes exactly mm -hmm. is probably what you're referring to. And if it's yeah. Penguin, it's got to be good. It's amazing with the little little flappers that they can print so well. <laughs> and the, how do they do the binding? <sighs> that's what confuses me the most. But are you done? Yeah, I'm done. Okay, cool. <laughs> uh, well this has been really fun and what a dark dark story we've just told our listeners merry christmas everybody <laughs> merry christmas but but with it you know as we said in the last episode when we talked about yule right the darkness and light bringing forth 
and shining its light onto everything and making it not dark any longer, hey, that's what the new ballet is all about, right? In a way, in a very abstract way, it is kind of very Christmas-like because Jesus came to the world supposedly to be the light in the darkness. And no, I think Tchaikovsky and Hoffman were just like, well, let's just riddle them with darkness. And then they'll appreciate Christmas <laughs> just a little bit more. It's very Catholic. You should approve of that. I do, actually. Yeah, he I does. Do. He's a resident Catholic. Oh, really? I'm the <laughs> resident agnostic. We're yeah. a great team. We're like Laurel and Hardy. <laughs> it, it is. We're the odd couple of uh, history. History and religion. <laughs> Indeed. Cass, thank you so much. Yeah, this was really fun. I was really nervous, but... This was a good time. Uh, Well, then you hit it well, (laughs) because obviously you are an amazing performer on stage, and your your presence here today has been invaluable. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Your perception, your, your perspective on everything really, I think, helped bring all this together. So I don't, I don't think we could have done the episode without you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And so, sir, how are we going to wrap up our Christmas season? Well, ladies and gentlemen, we asked you a question. We wanted you to tell us which would you rather hear. Traditions from around the world relating to Christmas or the Christmas Carol history. And And we heard nothing nothing because we kind of forgot to put it on Facebook. However, because we are imbeciles. Yes, that's true. Um, (laughs) But very, very clever and charming imbeciles, which is why we are still on air. So we are going to have to flip a coin. Yeah. Find out next week. (laughs) We can just do it right now. I have have an app. Oh. We're gonna. F- this is great radio, by the way. <laughs> I mean, is that it doesn't what this get is called? Better. I was trying to. You know how it's like. Well, it's okay. You're on the radio. Is is it on a pot? You're on a podcast. I consider it radio. It's we can call it patio if you'd <laughs> okay. like. But I, that's a website. They have oh, that name we shouldn't do that. We, we shouldn't, shouldn't do that. that. No, no, no. Don't sue us. Don't sue us. We don't have any money. <laughs> um, We're on that website actually. Uh, so, okay, I have in my hand the coin flip app available for iPhone. Because we're nerds and we don't actually carry currency. Who does that anymore? Seriously, it's all yeah. about credit cards now. So, uh, and you can't flip a credit card very easily because I've tried. You really can't. No, they just kind of keep going. So, um, we'll say heads, Christmas traditions from from around the world, tales, the history, history of a behind a Christmas carol, behind a Christmas carol. Okay. So here we go. The moment of truth. Drum roll, please. We have tales, ladies and gentlemen. We are doing a history of a Christmas carol. Thank God, that's what I wanted from the beginning. That's what I wanted. <laughs> so there you go. So fate has darn fate. We'll do it next year. We'll, All right, we'll do it next year. Fate has shined gracefully upon us this day. So, <laughs> all right, guys. Until we meet again, stay nerdy and tune into us next week. Same nerd time, same nerd channel. Nerdonomy.com. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Um, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? We're, we're well, getting we closer. Clearly, we have to hide the, the casket with the body, and we'll, we can get it. If we can get it out of the nerd cave, we might be able to make a break for it and break it back to where it belongs. Okay, all right. Um, what do we have that's 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 big enough to cover it? If what do we do with those blankets?